Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. So if you've been here before or listened to a past episode, you will know all about the Coffee Connection. If you don't, please head over to our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. All the info on why we're called Coffee with Conservationists is over there. I also regularly update this Instagram with information on independent coffee companies, important conservation issues, and generally a lot of the topics that my guests have been talking about, they're all really important and I think they should be shared on as many platforms as possible. So today I'm featuring Yale Coffee, one of three independent roasters based less than two miles from my flat here in Falmouth, Cornwall. Yes, I know, I'm really lucky. Yale really impressed me with their ethics and sustainability credentials. Please listen right to the end to find out who they are and why you should be supporting them. In this episode, I talk with Court Whalen. Court is a PhD scientist based in Colorado. He's a seasoned expedition guide and director of sustainability for Natural Habitat Adventures. We talked about his work with this company, and we also looked in-depth at the topic of conservation or ecotourism. We talked about what it is, uh, why it can be incredibly beneficial to both people and wildlife, and what's in store for a travel-dependent industry in the midst of a global pandemic. Hi Court, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for reaching out and expressing an interest in being here today. Uh, We usually start this off by getting to know you a bit. Could you kind of give us a bit of a rundown of who you are and where your interest in the natural world first started? Yeah, sure thing. Well, so yeah, my name is Court, just just like a tennis court. <laughs> uh, I live in Boulder, Colorado in the U.S., uh, kind of dead middle of the country, but very close to the Rocky Mountains. Um, I was born and raised in Florida, so quite quite far away from U.S. standards. Uh, didn't actually travel a lot as a kid, didn't, um, you know, did a little bit of nature here and there, but I would say my, my real passion with nature came kind of in the, the college years, to be honest, as I started getting out and doing my own things and doing backpacking in the Appalachian Mountains and hiking, and um, I started doing some travel as well, part of my degree program, studying entomology, uh, of all things, <laughs> uh, and I, I had, like a lot of people have in their early career days, this, this big epiphany when I took an internship to Belize uh, to lead a group of high school kids on kind of like a nature tour um, throughout the country, just to familiarize themselves with tropical biology i was kind of the the token biologist entomologist and i had this just aha moment that the best way well well, a the the first aha moment was really that holy cow this world's so beautiful i mean it's it's amazing what beauty is out there that i didn't know about that i think a lot of people don't know about and also at the same time what conservation issues are really imperiling a lot of these pristine beautiful places and it just all kind of came into one one single thought that okay the world needs help it needs conserved and the best way to do it is by showing it to people and giving them a bit of education in the field um i was on track in college to be you know in academia i was going to get my grad school degrees and whatnot and i thought well yeah you know i i I could be a teacher or whatever professor um but it dawned on me on this one trip that the best way to do so, at least for me, given my skill set, is to teach people about the natural world by being in it. 
and then connect that and fast forward to where I am today. Um, I have since gotten a master's and a PhD in ecotourism, and this was 15, 20 years ago where you know, ecotourism was barely even a household word. It was not all that well-defined and known. And I realized that, A, it helps educate people, but, B, it's really cool that it adds value to these natural areas, the landscapes, the animals, the wildlife, through the tourism dollars. And it essentially incentivizes these rural communities around the world to protect places because they're worth more alive than dead. Um, I think that ecotourism is a, is a big thing. As I said in my message to you, um, I was actually looking for someone to talk about it on the podcast, so very serendipitous. Um, but exactly. it's, there, there are kind of some, there's a bit of a negative opinion around some ecotourism aspects, kind of a lot of people think that uh, pristine habitats will get over overcrowded with people. Um, it's keeping it kind of positive. What's your opinion on that and, and why is it so important to add value to, eco, uh, to ecosystems through tourism? Yes, it's a great point, and I think that the idea of over-tourism is a problem and a challenge that we have to address head-on. I think the tourism industry has to take ownership over it. I think the regulatory bodies and policymakers and governments need to step in and manage that. I think, really, in my, my personal opinion, when you have the supply and demand curves, um, if you have that demand, you got to create some more supply. So when I hear of politicians taking away public lands and natural lands, taking away national parks and national monuments, particularly in the U.S., I think it's absolutely crazy because the idea is that there's unprecedented demand for natural areas. Therefore, we should be meeting that and creating the supply. It's just, it's basic economics. Um, But, you know, more than that, what we're at in this day and age in the world, in the natural ecosystems, is, is quite a triage situation. We're in the emergency room. We've got major hurdles. We've got illegal poaching and hunting. We've got development. We've got all sort of activities, legal and illegal, that are burning, quite literally burning and destroying massive tracts of ecosystems being completely unchecked. I mean, the Amazon is being burnt year to year. I mean, the, the recent fires of the last year or two is just one more example. I mean, they've been slashed and burned and converted for decades, uh, hundreds of years, really. And so what we're at right now is we're at a bit of a tipping point where if we continue this for another couple of decades, we're not going to have these natural areas, A, to enjoy, but perhaps more importantly, on a, on a cosmic global level, we're not going to have the ecosystem services they provide, the clean air, the clean water, the food, the crops, the agriculture, if we continue to... Uh, adjust and convert massive tracts of land. So, yeah, I mean, I would love if we could designate 25% of the world as no-go zones, you know, like nobody visits them. They just kept, they're kept pristine and beautiful and nobody sees them and that's fine. However, the reality that we're in is that if we do that, big corporations or private interests are going to go in and, and look at those and make the bribes and kick the people out of the land and convert them to... Um, housing, they're going to convert them to monocultures, palm oil, they're going to convert them into oil fields, Uh, they're going to start mining in those areas. So the best way to preserve those areas is actually to get people there. Um, And it's not just people because of the eyes and ears that people represent to, you know, be watchful and watchdogs, you know, making sure that the areas are kept pristine. But more importantly, what it does is it, it creates even more value for that area than the next best thing. So let's look at an example. You know, you can 
look at a mining operation destroying this is actually happening right now um in alaska mm, yeah proposed mine yeah, yeah. wants to yeah and i think i saw you you actually had talked to drew hamilton before a good good buddy of mine so i'm sure he <laughs> he probably talked about this on a, yeah classic example classic mm. example where um you, you come in and you destroy the ecotourism potential for um uh, extractive processes and this maybe a more classic example would be like deforesting let's just say you know a big forest in uh the amazon um, that has tourism potential. Well, it's found through a lot of studies that tourism actually brings in significantly more money in the long run than the short-term extractive processes, like like forestry, uh, hunting animals. Um, recent studies by the World Wildlife Fund have found that the big game, the big wildlife in Africa, are worth anywhere from five to five hundred times more alive than dead. Yes, they. They do, you know, communities do get money from hunting, and there's an argument for why that's actually part of conservation because they command big bucks, big dollars. Um, but if you look at it over the long run, you take one animal of the population, that's done. It's 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 a quick cash in, you know, that you you don't you don't get any more money out of that animal. But if you instead keep that animal alive, you know, that herd of elephants or that pride of lion, and they 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 draw in people to come photograph and observe and watch them safari industry is huge it gives you way more money in the long run so i'm going to give you one quick example here of that so this is one of the first studies that i found way back in grad school that actually documented the value of single animals from an ecotourism point of view and it goes back to uh, it's an aussie institute uh, university in australia that did a study on the tiny island uh, nation of palau in the south pacific uh, palau is known for its sharks, known for its diving, and pretty much everybody that goes there is going there with the intention of diving with these beautiful sharks and taking photos and enjoying them. Um, they found, they did a study that's you know, massive, like 35, 40-page peer-reviewed paper, but it, I'm going to distill it down into very basic things, is that they went, they looked at the tourism economy, they did all the research to figure out how much money is coming into the country because of shark diving tourism, you know, from the guides to the boats to the hotels to the restaurants to the, the rangers, the protection, like everything. And then they figured out, okay, well, how many sharks are in the population there? Like, the, you know, it's a resident population of, of sharks that doesn't stray too far from the coral reefs right around there. It's their home. And what they did is at the very end of the day, they figured out, okay, over the course of this, you know, a shark's lifespan in Palau, they are worth about $1.9 million to the local economy. Because wow. of all the money that tourism brings in, one point wow. nine million dollars. Yeah. So you contrast that with the other thing that sharks are known for in the Pacific, which is um, uh, fishing, or most importantly, shark finning, mm, um, yeah. where people catch sharks, they take the fin off for soup, and they throw the rest. An average shark fin, which kills the animal instantly. Yeah. Um, well, I guess not instantly. It's actually a pretty grim death, but it does kill the animal. It takes it out of the population. The average shark fin costs. It earns that fisherman about $108. So it's like what I love that boils that that's like the summary of ecotourism there is that if you can explain to local people that, okay, you can get $108 this way, or if you let them live and, you know, they live out their lifespan and they're part of the population, they bring tourism in, it's like multiple times. I mean, many, many more zeros on the end of that if you just let them be. And that's the whole idea is, is ecotourism adds value to the critters and the ecosystems to ultimately prop up the local people. I mean, this is this is a, a people survival thing just as much as it is an animal survival thing. That's a brilliant answer. Um, you've brought in kind of a lot of things 
that I've been talking about recently with, with different guests on my podcast. You mentioned Drew Hamilton. That was an excellent episode. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on there. Um, we've had some a lot of issues in the UK as well with land justice and uh, a lot of private land. I mean, uh, in the UK currently, we technically don't have access to 92% of the of land in, in England, uh, just in England, which is a huge amount. Um, and I think these yeah these issues need to be talked about um you mentioned shark finning as from an economic bent, uh, point of view there's a current big um campaign going on at the minute because you're allowed to walk through uk customs right now with 20 kilos of shark fins which is seven dead wow. sharks that's seven dead Holy sharks cow. uh without de- without declaring it so that's just without declaring it so i think you can walk in with more if you declare it um, just in your suitcase, pretty much, which is crazy. Um, so I think looking at these big issues like the pebble mine, like shark finning, from an economic standpoint, um, is really important just sitting down having these discussions because politicians, CEOs, uh, big companies, as you said, not after the long-term benefits, they're after the, the quick cash. Um, you know, Drew exactly. Hamilton, Drew was talking about all this stuff with... Pebble, and you know that's that's going to bring in lots of money for the big guys in the in the short term, but then once that's done, once all the uh, once everything's extracted from that mine, uh, they're they're going to have to deal with with a just massive toxic pit for however many thousands of years, um, which is pretty ridiculous to me. But I guess a lot of people just uh, just want the short term benefits. Well, um, that's the whole thing is is that it's the short term versus the long term, and and people like outside foreign companies, they don't hesitate to go into a foreign land and do that because they don't have to live in that land for the next thousand years. Um, so it's easy. I mean, it's morally difficult, I should hope, but it's it's easy to make that decision because they don't have to grow their crops in that land. They don't have to swim in those waters or whatever you do in the area. So what, what I love about ecotourism is that it takes all that other stuff, all the complexities, you know, the politicians, and just like you said, the, you know, the customs officers and, and people wanting to bring shark fins on their own. Like, yeah, it's, it's hard to change the behavior of dozens of layers of complexity, dozens of levels of hierarchy or bureaucracy. So what ecotourism does is it starts at the root. And what it does is it creates stakeholders that are quite literally there. You know, you can't be a foreign entity and come in um, and easily, you know, fish and, and hunt and, and set up mines and all that if the local people are not on board with it. So if the local people realize that there's so much more money to be made, there's so much more health to be had because of the, the economic benefits, you can put more food on your table, literally and metaphorically, um, they will be on board with the more sustainable process, more sustainable practice, which is sustainable tourism or ecotourism. Mm. Yeah, I think that's um, that's really important points, and a lot of the work you, uh, the lot of, of the what you're saying now, and the opinions you have around this, um, I guess can be based with your work with Natural Habitat Adventures. Uh, Nat Hab. That's correct. Um, what yep. what's you said? Your director of sustainability for them. Uh, obviously, you've done a lot of work with them. You know, I know uh, Drew does contracting for them sometimes, and works with them. In terms of kind of a, obviously we've talked about quite a lot of complicated topics with the from ecotourism. In terms of something quite positive, um, 
with my a lot of my listeners are students. Uh, they're going into the a wildlife photography course in the UK that I'm starting as well. Really great one. Um, and they'll be going on a few trips. Could you kind of give me a little bit of a talk through about the process of what goes into planning one of your expeditions? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been planning expeditions uh, with Matt Haddon and prior to that uh, for about 20 years. So I do have a good bit of experience. It, it all starts with an interest, of course. You have to think, well, okay, what do you want to see and where do you want to go and why do you want to do it? So a lot of our trips you'll see are centered around a certain focus, meaning it could be a certain species of wildlife or it could be even as broad as just general tropical biodiversity. But the idea is that you're going to see something in particular. Um, we're doing trips in, in the UK, in the Cotswolds. We're going uh, to Europe for the Swiss Alps. You know, there's, there's something that's the anchor point. And then you really develop the itinerary around it. Okay, so where do you need to fly into or how do you get there? Um, once you're there, do you want to immediately get out of the city or get out of that area or is there something cool to see nearby you know how do you structure the trip and really i would say the average trip and this is not just for nathab but just in general in terms of an international uh, expedition or adventure you know you're looking at one or two weeks um so that is a finite amount of time so you can't you can't do everything but you want to have a comprehensive trip and generally i think that spending you know less than two or three nights in a certain area just moves on too quick and even for photographers sometimes we do four or five nights in an area so that all of a sudden breaks your trip you know let's just say on average 10-day trip into usually about three different locations um because you're doing two or three nights a piece do the first night maybe in the the capital city where you have to fly into and then you're out in the field the rest of the time so really it's about figuring out okay well what do you want to go see is there anything else to see and how do you how do you maximize that time in about three different destinations over the course of one to two weeks. Um, So that's the general framework and template for a trip. Um, And then beyond that, you start thinking about, okay, great. So let's say we're going to India to see tigers. Well, there's a few different parks that have tigers. Great, so we're gonna go here, here, and here, three places. We'll just keep it simple. Um, Then you start looking into, okay, well, where do we stay? The accommodations, at least in my mind, are not the highlight because we we don't want to go to places just to have opulence and luxury for the sake of luxury. We, we want to do it because it is premium. We, we want to be, you know, our, our definition of luxury is to be out in the middle of the Serengeti with, you know, nice canvas tents, but nothing opulent, nothing with chandeliers or anything like that. But we want to be able to hear the hyenas laughing at night. We want to hear the lion roar at dinner um, while doing so with relative creature comfort. So we, we use that model for, choosing our accommodations pretty much anywhere in the world and you know a lot of places do not have safari camps necessarily you might have to be in hotels or lodges or eco lodges um sometimes you might have to be in big hotels in capital cities um but uh you know in general we we look at that model to find sustainable luxury not just for the opulence sake um, so working directly with local communities that might own the land or own lodges, you know, trying to doing the research to make sure that your money stays with the local communities and the local people, I think is really important because your accommodations, you know, your hotel, or your camp is really some of the most money that you're going to spend and some of the most money that has the opportunity to make its way to the local community. So, you know, if you're doing your meals in the camp and meals uh, in, or you're hiring your guides or your drivers from the camp, you know, it's a pretty big chunk of it all. So I think doing the research to figure out, well, what 
what does make them sustainable? What does make this hotel sustainable? Okay, sure, they don't, you know, they, they let you not wash your towels every day, but, but it goes way beyond that, you know. It's, it's more like, okay, well, do they have any local community programs? Do they hire locally? Do they train locally? Is there upward mobility? If they hire someone that has not had an education in the tourism background, is there is there mobility within the company to, to grow and grow and grow? So we really look to see what sort of positive impact does the hotel make to the area, to the community? Are they essentially turning it into a better situation than before they got there? Um, and that's really, I would say that's the, the meat and potatoes of trip planning. You know, you figure out where you want to go, the style of doing it, and then you make sure, at least for us, we do it in the most sustainable way. And of course, there's a another big added dimension of hiring the guides you know extraordinary people like drew and and others we have on the team um and making sure that it's someone that understands the conservation issues can talk about it talk about the biology and really leave people um that have been on the trip with us with that person more knowledgeable more inspired and more passionate than they were before the trip yeah i think i think a lot of my uh my peers will be really interested to hear that because um yeah it's, it's quite funny actually we we're not even started the course yet and they're already looking at um the international trips we do in second year and then in third year we plan our own um like a uh, project that's personally led and personally funded um so a lot of them are, are, are talking about destinations you know so far away and they I don't really have much of an idea about actually what goes into make getting them there and and making sure they produce what they want to produce um i mean mm-hmm. le- leading on from that and and talking about the whole process of expeditions i think uh covid-19 it, it's been a devastating thing for everyone um i think really heavily hit a lot of freelance uh photographers filmmakers creators um and especially people in the travel industry like yourself how how has uh, what what's your future looking like as, as with NetHab? Um, what's the the future of expeditions and, and wildlife photography, ecotourism really? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a few different timelines. You know, I think the the ultimate timeline. You know, in a in a couple of years from now, we're going to see tourism booming again. Um, we know for a fact from all previous uh, quote unquote disasters, whether it's events of terrorism, whether it's been disease. I mean, we, we've seen this kind of stuff before between, um, you know, SARS was not too long ago. We had H1N1. Um, we've had massive acts of terrorism throughout the world and, and, and tourism pulls back during those times. And we, we expect that and we brace ourselves for it, but it's always followed by a huge boom because like you said, the students that you work with travel is probably one of their greatest interests. Like it's what they look yeah. forward to most. And the whole world feels that way. Travel is the ultimate reward. It's the ultimate goal. It's why people want to make money and work, you know, 50 hours a week so they can take, or uh, sorry, 50 uh, weeks a year. So they can take two weeks off and, and go on an adventure somewhere. Um, so I don't, you know, the demand is not going to go anywhere. It's going to be there, but it's being pent up right now because it's just not feasible to travel far and wide at this moment. Um, how long that's going to last is, you know, anyone's guess at this moment. We obviously all hope it lasts as, as short as possible. But what's going to happen is we, we need to brace ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves when tourism does come back. That we can do so in uh, a, a, a powerful way, a robust way, but also perhaps a more sustainable way than ever. Because we have this time right now to regroup. 
we have this time right now to kind of look at ourselves, you know, spend time uh, reflecting inward to say, okay, so this is what tourism's looked like for the last, you know, couple decades. What, what are the next five years look like? And I think it's going to emerge in a very interesting, unique way. I, you know, we are positioned in a really good manner because we've always done very small group nature adventures where we try to get away from the big crowds and away from the big cities. And I think that, you know, we've always done so because we think it's more rewarding. It's more fun. It's, it's just quote unquote better. But I think going forward, what's going to happen is people are going to look at it as safer uh, mm, as well. Yeah. Um, I think they're going to look at, you know, big bus tours of 50 people driving around Costa Rica, um, you know, 48 of them you've never met before. And they're going to say, eh, I think I'd rather go with a smaller group company where there's just eight people. Um, or where I can go with a company that I can make it private or make it, um, you know, customized and it can just be me and my family. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. But, you know, really, I, I think in the short term, tourism is greatly impacted. Um, I think, you know, there will be hotels and there will be tour operators that no longer offer services. But on the big picture level, like, you know, what ecotourism is, what cultural tourism is, what all the different kinds of tourism is, they're, they're, they're going to remain they're gonna come back, uh, and we hope we hope it certainly as quickly as possible. Not just for our own sakes, of course. You know, we, we like to plan trips and we like to do all that. It's our bread and butter. But also, I I worry most about the communities overseas, um, and so we've been very focused on supporting our trackers and our guides and our rangers and and the people that work at the hotels that are unemployed right now, and we're making sure that they have food and healthcare and education um, because without you know, that's sort of the, the double-edged sword that we're seeing with tourism. It's, it's probably the, one of the best conservation tools out there. But in times like this, which are wholly unprecedented, and I hope they don't happen with any sort of frequency, mm. um, it does it, – it yanks the rug out from underneath people because there there is no support structure. So, you know, maybe that's another thing that we're going to see going forward is that the types of work and jobs – and job security is enhanced a little bit more. So when the good times are good, which we hope is, is the vast majority of time, people have the ability to save, people have the ability to stockpile um, and prep for you know the inevitability of, of some sort of downturn in tourism. Because it's, there's always going to be a waxing and waning. I mean, it's just how the world works, whether it's the price of oil that uh, increases flights prohibitively or whatever. Um, I think that people are going to look at this this event, this COVID, and say, well, gosh, you know, the worst could happen. So let's, as we go forward on the other side of this whole thing, let's structure our business, let's structure our enterprise, let's structure how we do things so that we're not taken aback and as uh, as surprised as we were during this time. Mm, yeah, I think um, a lot, there's so much uncertainty around. I mean, we're, we're just kind of, as students, we're looking at the next couple of years um, and going, you know, we can save up and we can plan, uh, but we can't, we can't do anything, nothing certain, uh, even day, like uh, overnight stays on somewhere like 20 miles away on Dartmoor, that's, that's not certain. Um, so I think there's so much, um, certain, if there's so much uncertainty and stress and worry around uh, a university course in the UK, the whole industry around the world is is freaking out um, in terms of to put it in a, a colloquially. But um, I know a lot of guides and rangers have been um, I've been keeping up with uh, a, a similar company to to NetHub in um, a South Africa based company 
it's really just affecting the boots on the ground in a in a really negative way. Um, and as as soon as we can kind of get a bit of certainty, even um, I don't know, it's hard to to predict the future. <laughs> Impossible, but uh, as soon as we can kind of get the feeling of optimism uh, back online or back on track, uh, I think things will pick up a little bit. Um, I agree, and you know, a message to your students and those people out there that want to get in the tourism industry, as uh, as hard as this time is right now, there is a silver lining um, in that there are going to be more opportunities than ever to start your own tourism business, to get into tourism once this whole thing is over with. Um, it, it's not fun to think about, but there will be tour companies and travel agencies that close. Mm. Um, those people that work there and the owners are going to be completely demoralized and be jaded. And that's going to open space for new businesses. Um, it's like a correction in the stock market. Um, you know, it, it's too bad when all your money goes down, but it's the best time to buy in because you know historically it's going to go back up. And that's exactly what's going to happen with tourism. Like, I guarantee you, I mean, I promise you, tourism will be back bigger and better than ever. Like, I, I know that for certain. That is a certainty. The question is when, but I guarantee you it's not more than a couple of years away. I and mean, we're not talking about, like, a decade of, of uh, lassitude here. It's, it's, it's in the scale of, you know, parts of year in, in a year or two, that kind of thing. So, yeah, if you're interested in getting into it and you have the patience, you have the time that you can wait, you know, for things to show a sign of life, there's going to be a big opportunity to get into the tourism here. I think probably, uh, it really, in my professional opinion, as early as 2021, as early as next year. Yeah, uh, they'll, they'll be all be really happy to hear that. I think because they're uh, kind of looking at me from a from a personal perspective. Um, I was so set on on doing certain things. I've just uh, come out of a gap year. Um, so I was I was all fired up to get into my course, um, and then I heard a lot of people have been deferring or dropping out because they are worried that the trips are cancelled. And it seems crazy to me because the a few international trips are incredible because they're organised by professionals uh, like you who know you know get the best deals for the best people, uh, but they aren't aren't the main bulk of the course. You can get so much out of that. So I think a lot of the people who are still considering even even two weeks before we we start uh, deferring, like I was a few uh, a month ago or so, I was considering dropping out because it um, it seemed like it was, wasn't even going to happen the whole course. Um, but uh, I think that will give them a lot of uh, a lot of hope and a lot of optimism. There, there is a lot of reason for hope. I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I mean, you. My advice to students out there is use this time to learn everything you can about the tourism industry. Um, you know, thank God the internet's still working. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's there's a, an unbelievable lot of information at your fingertips. And while an academic approach to tourism is uh, certainly a huge leg up, it's a huge positive in the this new future of tourism, just the practical understanding of, oh yeah, who are the major players in, in the travel industry? Who are the major players in African safaris? Who are the major players in cultural tours? Who, who are the best tour companies out there? Who are the mid-range tour companies? Who who are the companies out there that are doing the big bus tours? Because there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, it's, it's absolutely worth knowing who those people are, even if you're not into that sort of thing. Just so you have an understanding perspective of what the entire tourism landscape looks like. Um, so, yeah, read, read, research, research. 
If you like reading academic papers, get into that as well, because you know there's we, we've got the time right now, and knowledge is going to really set you apart in the next year or two. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, we're kind of coming to the end of the bulk of the the questions, but there's um, I'm very new to the podcasting game. It's a new thing. Uh, just to be honest, without as you said, without the internet, without time that I've been given during lockdown because I'm supposed to be on my gap year, supposed to be travelling. Uh, this wouldn't exist, really. But um, there's a lot of great wildlife podcasts, wildlife conservation podcasts floating around. Uh, you host your own one, the, the Wildlife Photographer podcast. Um, uh-huh. I've asked two of my guests a similar question, and they've both given quite different answers, so I'm interested to hear. But what what's your opinion on how important storytelling is in conservation and contributing to uh, positive environmental change uh it's everything and just a quick correction the the podcast name is the wild photographer um oh, okay it's, it's, cool. it's about Thank wildlife you. stuff of course but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. also about travel and landscape so anyway the wild photographer um yes storytelling is huge it's absolutely huge i mean it's storytelling is salesmanship and if you you know one of the best things you can teach yourself and become is a good storyteller and or a good salesperson because what you're trying to do is you're selling someone an idea that they should be interested in a topic and you can't just tell them random facts and expect that to be of interest some people will like that but really what what we all crave is we you know there's a reason why the movie and tv business uh is a, a billion who knows trillion dollar business because people want stories they want a beginning middle and the end they want to be entertained. They want to be inspired. They want to laugh. They want to cry. All that. So storytelling and understanding how to explain things and how to convince people of things, um, I think, is a really, really important skill. It's a really important trait. Uh, it's critical to the conservation world. Uh, there's a, a great quote that you cannot save what you do not love, and you cannot love what you do not know. So I think that storytelling is a way to get people to profoundly love and know the things you're trying to tell them about. Um, and me personally, you know, I, I realize that the doom and gloom stuff out there of conservation is always super critical to talk about. You know, if we don't know about the destruction in the Amazon, we don't know about the destruction here and there, we, we won't know to fight against it. But I think it has to be balanced and kind of the, the yin and yang of life um, with the positive stories. And, you know, when, when we did get the outcome we wanted, when something good is happening, those have to be equally represented. Otherwise, it's hard to have hope. Um, so I think that the new age of storytelling and conservation um, must balance the good with the bad in a way that inspires people that, hey, you know, there is no – don't lose hope. There's, it's possible to change all this. It's possible to reinvigorate the environment. It's possible to save this species or save this rainforest. All we need is you to care and to try. Well, that's a great answer. Very different from my the other two, so that's uh, that's perfect. I I really hope. Uh, yeah, that that question is always a bit um, interesting because I've, I've asked it to people not on the podcast as well, just fellow conservationists and um, photographers generally, and I've got a lot of varied answers. Um, but I think yeah, it's it's a really important one, um, and that's a, a kind of good place to kind of wrap off uh, before we finish. We're going to have a little quick fire round. Um, so this is something I've been doing with all of my guests. Just kind of the same questions. Four quick questions.
Um, so first off, what's your favorite animal? Oh, we're we're gonna go for a western tarsier right now. Very obscure. It looks like a. It, it's probably what, what the Gremlins, the Gremlins movie was based off of. Where is a place you like to go and kind of connect with nature? Somewhere you feel really at home in the wilderness. Oh gosh, um, you know, I I'd say maybe my answer could change from day to day, but I think you know your own surroundings, your own environment, like the, the natural area closest to one's home. So, you know, for me, just being up in the, we call it the front range here in Colorado, just the mountains very, very close, you know, only five minutes away from my home. Um, because I think there's something profound about immersing yourself in nature that is close to home, kind of getting back to that stakeholder thing. You know, we can, we can always care about, um, you know, the, saving the Great Barrier Reef. We can always care about saving bears or saving butterflies or saving western tarsiers or whatever. But I think that we have to also care about our own backyard. It's kind of like that philosophy that, you know, you it's hard to love another if you don't love yourself. So I think that finding solace in, you know, my own backyard, metaphorically and literally, is uh, it's very comforting, but it's also very important that we all have an appreciation for that. Do you have a conservation hero? Yeah, I might I might say um, Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson, uh, is, a, is a great inspiration to me. Um, he, he's an author of 30-plus books. Um, he will be known as E.O. Wilson, but uh, I, I've met him several times and would consider him a friend. Uh, Ed is a great guy. He's I like the fact that he's an entomologist, yet he thinks big. <laughs> and lastly, how do you take your coffee? Black coffee, just strong you know, the color of motor oil, but good coffee, good coffee. It's got to be good beans from a good place. And it's got to be roasted nicely. So, well, I mean, that's about it, really. But before we wrap up, uh, I'd like to know kind of where can people find you? Uh, what are your online handles, social media platforms, that kind of thing? Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank, thanks for asking. So, yeah, I've got a few different channels. I've got uh, my podcast, which is The Wild Photographer, um, it's all things nature, landscape, wildlife, travel photography. It's tips and tricks of how to get the best photographs. So it's kind of an instructional thing. Um, I've got a YouTube channel um, uh, of just under Court Whalen, and that's spelled just like a tennis court, and then W H E L A N. Instagram is similar; it's just Court underscore Whalen. Um, so yeah, check me out at any and all of those. Um, everything's about uh, what I hope to be high quality photography. <laughs> Uh, my own photography, uh, and inspiration from nature and travel and conservation. Brilliant. Well, thanks again so much for being on the podcast today. And I mean, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the future of the tourism industry and and what you come up with next. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, George. Kudos to you for designing a great topic and a great podcast here. I look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks again to Court for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring Yala Coffee. Yala Coffee Roasters, like all the coffee companies I feature, put sustainability high on their list of priorities. Argyle Home Farm, where they roast their coffee, has a net positive contribution to the national grid and is powered using renewable sources. They also use a range of biodegradable and recyclable packaging, which is really hard to do while still keeping the coffee really fresh, and they offset the tiny amount of carbon that they do produce by partnering with Trees for Life, a conservation charity dedicated to rewilding the Scottish Highlands. 
All the details of the particular coffee I'm drinking from Yalla will be over on our Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists and in the description down below. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. Please tune in on the 25th of October to hear episode 10, where we'll be bringing season 1 to a close with a special interview with James Mwenda, the ranger whose job it is to take care of the last two northern white rhinos on the entire planet. Thanks for listening, I've been your host George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. Mm-hmm.